There's people pulling up, you know, squid, you know, people pulling up this and that, clams, little cockles here, and you might like pick out a fish and you bring it to this little stall and they'll cook it up for you in one of, I don't know, three ways that they'll have. And one classic way is to get it just like pan fried whole. It's wonderful. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On this very special episode, I catch up with the one and only Kathy Irway. Kathy is a prolific writer and cookbook author behind the great new book, A Taiwanese-American Cookbook, which she co-wrote with the founders of Brooklyn's Winsom. On this episode, we talk about Kathy's cookbook writing career and her James Beard award-winning work on taste. We also dive into her column, Shelve It, and find out how the grocery store shelves tell us so much about modern culture. It was a lot of fun having Kathy on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Kathy Irway, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And I'm, I'm really happy that we are doing a full episode. You've been on the show before. We've talked about your column and your writing. You've been writing for Taste um, from basically the beginning. Wow. Yeah. It's been a while. 2017? Is that when you started? Yeah. 17 yeah. is when we started. Yeah. Huh. I think from the beginning. You just filed a copy. I want to talk about this <laughs> column because you write a monthly column called Shelve It. It's truly one of my favorite things to work on each month. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoy it. Thanks for letting me do this column for so long. It's, uh, it's something that I really prioritize, and I p- take a lot of, uh, you know, I just take a lot of joy in. So Yeah. You put, you put a lot of effort into it, and, and really it shows because you are writing about the grocery store, about CPG, to use a weird acronym, but, like, the world of, like, food we buy. Right. Um, we can talk about the, what, the copy you just filed, but, like, what is Shelva to you? Let's get into that. I mean, I think it's lesser explored and yet so deep with fascinating story ideas. I mean, grocery products, the things that we always eat. Um, You know, we talk a lot about restaurant foods. We talk a lot about cooking. We talk a lot about traveling and eating and cooking and all that stuff. But what about the stuff that you're just like shopping for, like pasta? Everything has a fascinating story behind it. So sardines, for instance, that's the latest copy we're working on. Um, but and and also like you know more esoteric products, um, products from Taiwanese culture like sha cha sauce, which I did a, mm-hmm. a story on. That has a fascinating story behind it too. So I mean I think that just like there's no limit to it. It it's really a fun I don't know column to yeah. do. Yeah, and you you do it in a way with your writing and your reporting that isn't. Um like the Wikipedia of blank. Because, I mean, that's the tendency with some of these things. Like, we're going to write about the history of macaroni and cheese. What you do is you synthesize um, the history, but you always have a modern angle. Like, you're like, this is important now. Mm. Um, But then you also get into some of the deeper history, too. Have you you found a product that, like, you didn't realize it was so – had such a rich backstory? Yeah, I think when it came to the chili pepper – it, it was like, you know, dried chili spices and mm-hmm. powders uh, column. That's just like an ingredient that we take for granted. And it has just so much crazy variation throughout the world, the history of it. But it's also something um, that I, I think a lot of people think of as not like this one monolith. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to producers and stuff like that, it's like, well, it's all the same like genus of chili pepper. <laughs> like, and they just kind of evolve differently in this, these places and we process it differently in those places. Anyway, so that was an interesting one. The lechoy. 
Oh, the Latoya column. Ones. I think, like, honestly, that column to me, I it's my favorite story from last year by far, from 2022. Wow, thanks. Yeah, you trace the, the story of Latoya, which is a, a very common and popular um, product you're going to find in the Asian or the ethnic food aisle. Um, but there's a longer history that you uncovered. What, what is that? I know. I feel like this could be a book, but um, yeah, the the founder. So so first of all, I found out that, you know, Lachoy was celebrating its 100th birthday, even though like even when I talked to the brand manager, they didn't even seem to be aware of it. I just <laughs> somehow <laughs> happened to cross that fact. So weird. And I, I you know, I, I, I know that there were like all these ads, like I had a vague memory of like the Latoy dragon from the Jim Henson created for ads. Mm-hmm. But um, when I looked into who founded Latoy, it really surprised me. It was this Korean American man and, um, his friend from the University of Michigan, yeah. like his like college buddy, who was a white uh, Midwestern man, and uh, they just sort of teamed up, and they were growing bean sprouts at first, yeah, um, and then they decided very consciously to create a Chinese food brand yeah. and to have the, all these recipes and it just went, you know, went off from there. Yeah. And there's a lightning strike. There is, yeah, there, um, a, there's a, drama, a, there's drama and there's, um, the Korean gentleman heads back to Korea and has a whole crazy history. A huge entrepreneur. Entrepreneur yeah. worked, um, as a member of, uh, the military mm-hmm. and, um, in a, in, during a time in Korean history that was very, uh, tumultuous. Um, yeah, it, it should be uh, a show. Like right. I, I think it's a TV show. I, we've talked about it. It's like, I know. Riffed about it a bit. It should be like its own thing. But I, one of the most exciting, and I think their stories are really interesting, but if I may, like the story of Latoya is so interesting because they've had so much impact on, I think, American Americans' idea of Chinese food. Yeah. And not a lot of people kind of talk about it. When I talked to some Chinese-American historians who had written books about about this very topic, Chinese American food, um, they're like, yeah, actually, maybe we didn't pay enough attention yeah. to this company because they really they put out cookbooks every year. Every you know, they gave them away free. These are free recipes, and that's how recipe, recipes gets distributed. And definitely, and and I think one thing with modern food media why it's ignored is because the the quality is is mid to lower quality, right? There's some of the product is. Um, uh, a can of bean sprouts is maybe not the kind of bean right. sprouts you want to want to buy, and also the 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 trademark soy sauce um, has a lot of additives and it's, isn't. It's not soy sauce, yeah. Yeah, it's not even soy sauce, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's maybe that's why it's ignored. That's why I love working it's, with you on shelf it. It totally is why it's ignored, but it's also like, and that's because there was no Chinese people working for that company, <laughs> and there still aren't. <laughs> still aren't yeah um interesting i'm gonna link to that in the show notes i love that story i want to go back though and we've never talked about this on the on the mic about your history because it's cool and i've known you for a long time you uh, in 2010 uh, put out a book that um was really ahead of its time in many ways um and i feel like i'd like to get into your early uh quote-unquote food blogging yeah which we used to call food media back then. It was called food <laughs> blogging. Um, but your first book, let's talk about that. What were you trying to do with it? Yeah, so I started a blog called Not Eating Out in New York in 2006. I thought Not it, Eating Out. Yeah, Not Eating Out in New York. And that was the literal name of it. And that was the whole sort of stunt of it. <laughs> yeah. Was, was I wasn't going to restaurants for a certain period of time. I wasn't sure how long, but I thought it would be a fun thing to chronicle in a blog. Mm-hmm. And um, it 
ended up going on for two years. Um, wow. You did not dine in a restaurant for two right, years. Right, right. And there's a couple memorable uh, f- <laughs> falters in, that are described <laughs> in the memoir <laughs> that followed the 2010 uh, book, The Art of Eating In. But, uh, yeah, and I guess I think I just wanted to explore cooking in an unlikely city for that at the time. And it was an unlikely topic for food media, which was blogging at the time, which was all about, you know, restaurant chefs, yep. gossip and all that stuff. Completely. That's why I say it's pioneering, because I think when you look at food media now, um, it's really driven by cooking. I think every even like yeah, the traditional right. restaurant um, publication called Eater oh, um, I know. writes like home cooking stories. now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to get a viral recipe. I, guess I know there's not, there's not as many viral chef interviews. <laughs> yeah, the viral chef interview is not happening. No, and I think, but you uh, did two years of of only cooking, so clearly you you got a real sense of what it's like to cook in a small kitchen, right? Yeah, yeah, and and also I, I feel like it's not as crazy. A lot of people thought it was crazy, um, but like you know, a lot of people nowadays have special dietary needs, that, so they're cooking for themselves a little bit more. I mean, it just, you get into the habit of it. It just, you get into the swing of it. You have leftovers. You have bits and pieces mm-hmm. of this and that. You can feed yourself pretty easily and quickly. So what was home cooking like then, back then in like 2010? I feel like in New York, it was harder to shop, I would imagine. It was harder to shop. I was living in a string of different like apartments every other <laughs> year or so yeah. during those years in Brooklyn. And um, I would just go to the local grocery, but I would also have like this mix of, you know, I at, at certain points I was a member of a CSA. At certain points I was like... Um, you know, volunteering for green market, stuff like that. So um, I and I also hosted, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. cooking events <laughs> after a certain point. I like it would throw because, you know, people are like, how can you socialize without going to restaurants? I was like, you know what? I'll throw a cook off. I'll throw yeah. a potluck. I'll do this. So I ended up throwing a lot of events shopping. Yeah. yeah. Shopping was just a mixed bag. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally like no, no, no. Uh, like fresh direct you oh like, no no iphones you i've can never like done dial that up. yeah never done it so like it didn't <laughs> even affect you in 2010 eater called you one of the top 10 eccentric brooklyn food personalities <laughs> how did you find that i found that on like the blurb for your book oh my god did you do you remember being called i that? do remember i remember that that story it's so funny and i think that underscores just how subversive this idea of not eating out in new york was because that was the whole reason yeah it was like Somebody decided to not go out to eat. Was there anything happening in food media back in like 2008, 2009 that is like better than now? I like that the focus was more on writing just because I'm a writer and less on visuals and like, you know, pretty photography. I think it takes up a lot of space. I mean, especially in the Instagram era where it's like, you know, it's mandatory. Um, I you know, I don't think it's better. I don't think it's necessarily better that it was, you know, less visually driven before. When you think of blogs like, you know, Julie and Julia, there was no visuals, right? Yeah. People read blogs like like diaries. They read them like, um, and I have to say newsletters are kind of similar to mm-hmm. blogs back in those yeah. days. I'm hopeful so, about the newsletter yeah. boom and, and, and our newsletter that you should be subscribing to. Check it out. I, I've, I'm hopeful that reading – people do read words. But I, I also – the flip of that is I, I'm a little like pessimistic about the future of food media because, you know, the visuals do it so well. Like yeah. if you want to cook something – I mean TikTok is amazing. Instagram is reels, amazing. Reels, reels and, you know, tightly edited 
things are just, you know, taking it, over. It's amazing. I mean, it's just they're good. Like it's how it people learn to cook and like people who have no idea about quote unquote food media are learning to make food from TikTok. And that is OK. Like mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's bad, but certainly when we invest a lot of time into writing all these stories and we just hope people are reading them because we do our best and we send them out and it's just hard, though. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you have to, like, learn a new skill each time. <laughs> yeah. And it is media. Now, let's skip ahead and talk about your book, your 2015 book, The Food of Taiwan. Really interesting book. Really um, groundbreaking book. You write about this in the intro of your new book, um, which we'll talk about. Win Some presents a Taiwanese American cookbook. That's your new book. In the intro, you reflect on selling that book and how you had some awkward conversations with editors. It was it was not as warmly received. Let's talk yeah. about that. I mean, I tried to sell the food of Taiwan for two years, man, and uh, it got rejected just across the board. I had a couple meetings with editors, but they couldn't get it past the editorial. T- they couldn't get it past the sales team because yeah. there was no blueprint. There's no precursor Taiwanese cookbook for them to say, hey, that's going to sell well. So, but, you know, we, I, I was trying to say, well, that's why we should have a yeah. Taiwanese cookbook because there is none. Um, but, you know, that just didn't sell. <laughs> um, but it did eventually. And it, it became a, a well-regarded, it's one of, uh, you see it in shelves and I see it in restaurants all the time. I, I just see yeah. it there. I mean, that took a lot of chance, though. Actually. Yeah. Who, give credit. Who, who, so, who I bought mean, it? The, the funny thing is I was at a bar mm. and I happened to sit next to Justin Schwartz, yeah. who is was at the time a uh, Hot and Miffin Harcourt editor. Yeah. Now he's at Simon Schuster. But yep. uh and he was like, Hey, are you Kathy Airway? And I was like, Yeah. And like we were talking and he's like, I mentioned this book that never sold. He's like, Oh, let me see it. Turns out, um, you know, I sent it to him then. Turns out he did get it like a year yeah. before but didn't remember. But anyway, one thing led to another and uh, I basically sold it to him in a bar. Yeah, I love that story <laughs> and credit to Justin for picking that up and I guess at the time, you know, Taiwanese cuisine was not crystallized in um, – it wasn't part of lexicon. True, um, yeah. I'd say similarly with Koreatown when we the books came out in like less than a year apart and mm. have a similar story, which I've shared on the podcast. But about Taiwanese cuisine in America, um, let's get into that. Like what – was the baseline knowledge of it in 2015 when you when you released this book? Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, to say that this was like 2012-ish when I was actually selling it because it yeah. took a, another Same. year or two right. to, you know, for it to come out. A lot changed in that time. Um, it did become a little bit more well-known because, um, I don't know, namely Eddie Huang opened yeah. Bauhaus. He's a big personality. He's great with media. So he really helped um, – bring awareness to the concept of Taiwanese food. Yeah. Um, you know, granted, it was only one very small aspect of it, which is steamed sandwich buns. Um, but uh, yeah. And then I, I think that Taiwanese-American identity really took off, too. You've had folks like Jeremy Lin, Lin Sanity. Yep. Um, there was a fashion designer, Jason Wu, who designed a, Michelle Obama's dress uh, for this inauguration. I don't know if anyone recalls. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, all these like touchstones. Yeah. I, I, Very famous. I like put this all in my proposal. I was like, hey, there's these Taiwanese-American yeah. people. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've had actually a Google alert on the term Taiwanese food um, <laughs> for like over 12 or 15 years. Do you look at it still? Oh, yeah, yeah. every day. That's fun. So you get yeah. to see what's what the growth of it, and mm-hmm. like really like in in a you can quantify the growth. And just I the do, pings. yeah. I try to share interesting things on my Facebook group called yeah. the Food of Taiwan. So oh, you manage that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful! I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. I love that. Um, 
so the book was successful and you you did a bunch of events and you end up meeting your co-authors while doing events. They were opening Winsome. Yep. Um, and you've written the book with them and I've been waiting for this book for a while. It's been delayed a little bit. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the book and about Winsome. What is Winsome? Winsome is like the first restaurant I've ever seen to bill itself on the awning outside as Taiwanese-American restaurant. Um, and it's by uh, it's founded by one guy who's Taiwanese American, Josh Koo. Yeah. His friend Trig Brown, who's a, a chef. He's originally from Virginia. He's a white guy. And um, so the food that they create is, uh, I guess, a mixture of their influences. Um, Josh, you know, grew up going to Flushing and you know, Taiwanese restaurants there with his family. Um, he and Trig spent a lot of time eating Taiwanese food in, in Flushing and then eventually traveling in mm-hmm. Taiwan a lot and eating everything there. So it's kind of just like their unique perspective on Taiwanese food made for an audience that is in their uh, neck of the woods, which is Williamsburg, mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Now, at the time they, of their opening, um, you write in the book there there wasn't um, a lot of uh, – Taiwanese restaurants in New York, right? There weren't. Yeah, I think there were like standbys. Like Elmhurst has uh, yeah, a great place called Taiwanese Gourmet. Um, there's plenty of places in Flushing that have been around for a while. There weren't like trendy, hot, buzzy restaurants except for um, Bauhaus, and then a few others um, kind of joined the fray soon after, which has all been, you know, very exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah. the, the restaurant's extremely popular. There's a bakery as well. Um, and many of our listeners have, have been there and made pilgrimages there. It's on all the lists. Um, so when you're writing a book with these guys, what and you've written this like really canonical book, like you're about Taiwanese cuisine, like you've written your book. So what do you do then? Like how do you uh-huh. how do you figure out what like what is this book in 2023? What is what is fresh about this book? Yeah, so the, I mean the Winston Taiwanese American cookbook is super different because it's um you know it's it's about their restaurant and it's about their relationships yeah. and it's about their particular brand of uh Cuisine. I don't want to say fusion, but it, it like it has their own sort of trademarks on each yeah. of the dishes. So it, everything's a little bit askew. Everything's a little bit different, a little bit um, playful. Yeah, and it's creative too. It's I mean, creative. that's a word I would yeah. use too. Yeah. Exactly. Very creative. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and writing about that story, like you know, I wanted to um, help them incorporate the things that were important to them. So they really wanted to somehow incorporate. The people, a lot of the people that yeah. they've um, been inspired by and helped inform their work, their food, and so forth. And they're such collaborative, community-oriented guys. Like, they're always doing pop-ups with some neighbor and so forth and, like, really kind of sharing the love around the neighborhood. So I wanted to try to organically um, incorporate these people that they wanted to pay homage to in the book. And um, so— I suggest that we do conversations mm-hmm. interspersed throughout the book. I really like that. And it's something that I think is not done enough in cookbooks when um, the writer uh, interviews folks and puts them in mm-hmm. the book. Though mm-hmm. My book, Food IQ, interviewed you for the book. Oh, so yeah. That's there you right. go. <laughs> not shutting up myself, but um, I love it so much. I think sidebar material is important in cookbooks. It's not just the recipes. And I like um, – so what are some of these conversations you have in the book? And I mean I love that they're edited really well. They're like tight oh, and good. fun to read. Oof. I mean they're – that's hard because sometimes they can get very long and unwieldy, yeah. but you've made them very fun. But who are some of the folks you're talking to? Yeah, so when the first ones we did was like a roundtable literally at um, 
uh, a Chinese restaurant in Flushing, along with Eric C., who's the yeah. owner of 886, Rich Ho, who owns Ho Foods, another Taiwanese restaurant in the city, Calvin Ang, who used to be the chef at Winsun. Bonnie's. But now he opened Bonnie's, yeah, which great. is a very celebrated restaurant now. Yeah. And... Um, is that everyone for that dinner? Yes. And, uh, you know, that was a great roundtable discussion. And, you know, I tried to, you know, to make these conversations serviceable as well as entertaining and, you know, showing their genuine voices. I tried to keep the topic around like, hey, can we talk about like what makes this dish Taiwanese? And like, you yeah. know, what do you think are some Taiwanese ingredients? What do you think are some mm-hmm. really hallmark Taiwanese dishes and mm-hmm. so forth? So to hear them. Respond like in time was really fun, and they're like fun guys to hang they're out fun with guys, too. Yeah. There's definitely conviviality there. Um, yeah, we went to karaoke right after that. Did you really? Yeah. What's your song? I don't think I sang that yeah, night. Yeah, sorry. You had the recorder on. You were the reporter in the room. <laughs> I was. You had a you had a job to do. You had to write the book, That's not right. sing Borderline. Um, let's talk about Taiwan because geog- geographically, it's an island. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. and we we many may not know where it is in the world, and you know, I think we should talk about that. But I want to talk about water because I think it's an important concept because you, you're surrounded by water. It's an island. And then there's fresh water in many of the dishes and in, in many of the soups. Um, mm. And I feel like water plays an interesting role. This is an observation. So, Kathy, I just wanted to, I always wanted to ask you how water plays a role in Taiwanese cuisine. Well, I mean, surrounded by the sea, like seafood is a huge part of the cuisine. And it's also like a really um, seasonal uh, place. Like cool. Every, you know, every fall, every October, right, like when this hairy crab is in season, people just go crazy. And, like, <laughs> there's, like, crab-eating mm-hmm. festivals. There's, like, you know, specials everywhere. Um, you know, there's certain seafoods in different areas that people really flock to. And um, there's all these roadside seafood restaurants where you can get, wow. like, a really, really fresh thing. You can just, like, point at the vats. Like, oh, my gosh. There's people pulling up, you know, squid, you know, boats here are coming in, mm-hmm. people pulling up this and that, clams, little cockles here. And you might, like, pick out a fish and you bring it to this little stall and they'll cook it up for you in one of, I don't know, three ways that they'll have on their menu. And one classic way is to get it just like pan fried whole with some soy sauce, um, chilies thrown in there, some scallions thrown in there, lots of gingers thrown in there, and just kind of have this like kind of soupy sauce, like, but like it permeates like the whole fish too. So it's like, it's wonderful. (laughs) It sounds incredible. And it sounds like a place I want to visit. And, and, Mm -hmm. and really, how do you visit Taiwan? Like how how do you do you stay in a city? Do you stay in Taipei? Yeah, and 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 go out um, and drive around. Like what's it like? Well, the main airport, the international airport, is going to be in Taipei, so yeah. you might as well start there. Mm-hmm. And then from there, there's high speed rail, so you can go down to the like very south of Taiwan in just a couple hours or so. So you're it's like a really great place to like yeah. travel because it's very easy to get around. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a lot of diverse, different landscapes to yeah. see if you leave the cities. Definitely go to the shores, you know, go to the mountains. There's, like, wow. tea-growing regions mm-hmm. on all these mountains. They're beautiful. There's um, a beautiful lake called Sun Moon Lake. Just, like, the, yeah, the landscapes are stunning. One recipe that just jumped out of the page is the pan-fried chive pockets. Mm. I just really like that. I, I've not made it yet. I just got the book recently. Mm, yes. What's that? Like, is that a— it, it, is like the ch- how does the chive work? Because you have a section in the front that defines mm. chives. It's like 
just sits there and like it's like there are two types of chives. And yes, yes. I love that. I like that you like this because it's such a, you know, it's a vegetable forward, you know, dish. It's yeah. like some might some might pe- some people might think that like a dumpling that just has vegetables in it is a lesser product than a meat dumpling, but this dumpling is so juicy and fresh. It's uh filled with these Chinese chives called jiao cai, which are mm-hmm. like super dark bright green and um they're pungent, and uh, the aroma, you'll just smell them from, like, uh, I don't know, several feet away if they're at a street vendor. Um, so they're just, like, a really great flavor on their own. I actually had that on the cover of The Food of Taiwan. Mm, that's cool. <laughs> Although the color was a little washed out. But, yeah. yeah. Different yeah. printing time. Different, yeah. <laughs> different era. It was. Colors have gotten better in printing. I think so. Um now, this book is is from a, a chef point of view. Yeah. Uh, it's, I wouldn't call it simple, which I'm glad it's not. Um, I guess for our listeners who want to buy the book and cook from it, what's what's your take on on these recipes that have sub recipes that have yeah. that take they require um, multiple multiple hours or even multiple days? Um, why is it worth uh, tackling one of these recipes? I mean, if you want to get a real idea of how they're made, of how this food that has attracted so much buzz and attention and, mm-hmm. you know, book deals, then, you know, if you want to get a sense of how they're made, then that's how they're made. Uh, we did, of course, you know, edit it for straightforwardness um, yeah. and make sure that it was doable. Um, but, you know, there's I think there's a good variety. Like there's some that are very quick to stir fry, you know, like uh, fly sets, for instance, which is like chives, once again, yeah. stir fried with a little bit of ground pork and boom, it's all done in the matter of like you know, two minutes. But um, there's some that if you really want to geek out and know how to make like the pot stickers or like the um, the pork buns that they do, well, you got to make a jellied stock first. Here's how to do that. Yeah. Take some bones, you know. <laughs> it's a lot. Ass- yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. But, but I respect that because you, you really need to understand that when you're dining at a restaurant or you're dining, you're eating Cantonese, you're eating Taiwanese cuisine or eating Korean food or Cantonese, you, you have to understand that there are so many steps and you that takes time and money, yeah. and you should pay for it yeah. in restaurants. And, of course, it was, like, it was hard at first because, like, well, can we make this easier? And, like, I didn't really want to, like, you know, push the chefs too much. But, like, yeah. you know, I, I respect that they were like, no, this is the way it has to be done. Yeah. Yeah. How do you talk about the politics of Taiwan um, on a podcast about food and we're, like, 25 minutes in right now or something? Mm. I mean, we. It, I, I, wanna, I don't want to let it go. I don't want to oh, let that topic go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without mentioning it, but we certainly um, – it's a lot to talk about. So how do you say if someone comes to you and say, I don't really – I hear about Taiwan mm-hmm. on the news. Um, I know it's important, but I don't really know much. Kathy, what's going on there? Yeah, I think it just helps to know a little bit about the last century, I guess, or the last couple of centuries or more. Um, basically, um, you know, Taiwan has been in this kind of status quo that is a little uncertain because – well, let's just go back to the turn of the 9th, uh, 20th century, I should say. Um, that is when um, it was ceded to Japan. Japan occupied it and owned it for 50 years until 1945. Um, that is when they uh, surrendered to the Allies in World War II, Japan, and then ceded the island of Taiwan, which is its property, to whatever China was at that time, but China was in the middle of a civil war. Mm -hmm. So um, there was between the nationals and the communists. Well, 
We all know the communists won. Uh, mm-hmm. The nationals fled to Taiwan, made that their temporary sort of mm-hmm. base and created a new sort of government there, ruled it like at first it was military rule. Granted, I, I think that I should have mentioned before. <laughs> Again, not easy. <laughs> Thank not you so easy. far for getting this far and really <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's just complicated yeah. because, well, so the people who were there before the nationals were there were Chinese um, and Aboriginal folks mm-hmm. who had been there for centuries, centuries. Mm-hmm. So um, it's now a very mixed society where you have those people that came at the end of the 40s, my grandparents included, from mainland China who were fleeing with, ask where they with came the from. nationals. Yeah, okay. they were from they're from Hunan province. Yeah. So uh, the nationals that fled mainland China um, were from all over. Right. There wasn't a concentration in uh, a certain region. Right. Interesting. So that's why the cuisine – um, of an island nation, um, what's the size? Would you? What's the comp? comp to oh, it was the size? like twenty three million for people. Twenty three million, but the size of the island, like oh, the I don't know. Size, um, um, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I should know that. it's a challenging one. I, yeah. I think it's it's not as as big as you would imagine for mm-hmm. twenty three million. So, but it's like from all over yeah, true. China, but plus the native cuisine, which yeah. has its, its elements too. And you write about all of this in both of your books. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's um, once you wrap your head around that, I think that all these like tensions are a little bit easier to, you know, you get it. It is very tricky though, because nobody quite knows, you know, what's going to happen yeah. in the future. Nobody quite knows what's the right direction, you know. Even in Taiwan right now, it's like you know, each yeah. each election, it's like there's differing opinions on all these things. Mm-hmm. Plus, the uh, silicon chip industry is based there. That's so it's an true. absolute yeah. foundational element for um, our global um, CPU business and, and just what drives that's, the world. That's hugely important. Another yeah. thing that I think is worth mentioning is that it's a huge beacon of democracy in the you know East Asia. Yeah. And uh, that would be really uh, sad if it weren't anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it would be sad to see that that change. Absolutely agree with you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I think it's it's tricky to talk about it, it, just to explain it in such a short period of time. One last question about the book. What are you doing to, like, promote it? Are we going to be able to see you out in the, in the world in the next few months while you're releasing it? I'd love to, like, try some of this food. Yeah. So there's going to be a panel event at Archistratus Cookbooks yeah. a store in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Sonia Chopra from... Bon Appetit is going to moderate nice. that discussion. Great. It should be really fun. There's going yeah. to be snacks. Nice. Um, and then uh, there's going to be some pop-up dinners in the works um, for in February, though. Yeah, great. Okay, I can't let this go. Um, we worked on a book together. That's right. And I want to talk about it because I love this book, She Pan Chicken. Thanks so much. You know what? Um, I wish more people had read it or read. will read it. You know, I was at uh, – where did I go? Um, I think it was just like a Thanksgiving yeah, party. And I heard from people who were like, oh, yeah, I make that dish all the time. I make that uh, internet chicken. Yeah. The one that your your wife, I think, contributed. <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've heard from people that are like, oh, yeah, I make the, the, the mushroom, the Dijon chicken all the time. Um, so, you know – it's getting around. I mean, these are granted people I know, but um, no, people but are using it still, you know, a couple of years later. It's, I a, guess it's, it's a just good a sign. fantastic book. Sheep <laughs> and Chicken came out with Thames Street Press. I think it, it um, the writing is great. I think the recipe development is great. Um, what is it about chicken that, uh, you know, allowed you to write 
Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, chicken is so versatile, but yeah. also like so many cultures have embraced it. Yeah. So there's a fun chicken recipe around the globe, anywhere you point to in the globe. So it was really fun to kind of like cover a lot of territory, invite a lot of different, uh, you know, guest uh, recipe uh, um, mm-hmm. contributors and um, and just kind of play off of different chicken dishes in a sheet pan format. Yeah, the, the sheet pan is obviously always on our minds. Yeah. Uh, and chicken is the most popular protein. So, like, clearly there was, like, some kind of, like, A plus B happening and there. And everybody loves roast chicken. Yeah. I mean, and it also, it bleeds onto the other things that are on the pan. Yeah. So even if you just have chicken and potatoes, it's going to be delicious. It Those is. potatoes, schmaltzy, yum. I'll link to that book in the show notes. Check it out. It's really fantastic. I love it. Okay, a few more questions. Um, you just wrote about the walk for wire cutter. That must have been a lot of work because you're like picking the five best walks. You're yeah. offering advice how to buy a walk. So I just want to know for the podcast, like how do I buy a walk? Yeah, thanks. Um, that was that was an epic guide. <laughs> it was yeah. it was a lot of fun though. Yeah. I mean, working with the wire cutter editors was, was they were great. So um, how do you pick a walk? So I mean. I think that you need to be realistic about your expectations. You yeah. know, what kind of stove do you have? Is That's the first question. Um, I geared my picks towards assuming that you have either gas, electric. I did test on electric and induction to make sure that, you know, these walks, the final picks, mm-hmm. would work on that surface fine. Um, gas is a little better for walks, though, because you do have, like, you know, flames Absolutely. that could it get in. It kisses the walk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that would be the ideal. But, you know, and then you want to think about ease and um, weight. So mm-hmm. walks really ranged differently in terms of weight. Um, you know, and we also controlled for things like carbon steel. Carbon steel is like that magical sort of classic walk material mm-hmm. that becomes more and more nonstick-like yeah. over uses. So it 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 achieves this patina, basically, that you want yeah. to have. That's why I'm, like, very sad that the handle in the walk that I've had for about eight years is going to break. Ooh. It's, like, warped, and, like, it's Ooh. definitely going to have a moment where I'm, like, have a full um, fried rice, bokumbapa, and it's going to, like, oh, snap. Oh, no, but you have patina on I it? have it, and I might be able to rehandle it. Have oh, you ever okay. heard about that? I don't know. I'm making you should that totally up. do that. Get yeah. it rehandled. Because it has that, that hmm. yeah, that, that, that shine to it that makes it almost nonstick, as you said. Is there a brand that we should buy? Yeah, I mean, it's not like a really a brand, but like the store called the Walk Shop is yeah. is um, the one that I went to. And actually, the handle screws off mm-hmm. um, so that you can pack it well. Mm-hmm. So I just it just occurred to me that if you if that handle something happens to it, you can just get a new one. I would imagine that there's a way to like because it's it's the the holes are fine. It's just the mm. the bolt is oh. getting very overused, and it's gonna. I'm oh no, kidding! Yeah, I should, I'll send you a photo of it. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, but everyone should buy a walk, right? Yeah, definitely. It's going to last a lifetime. Well, except, except for if your handle breaks off, but you can rehandle it. We'll, we'll we'll like work with the math that you can rehandle a walk. It's all about the the shine and patina of the cooking that makes it unstick. I wow. love cooking with it so much. That's great. It's one of my favorite things to cook with. You should um, shout out to Walk Wednesdays, which is a <laughs> Facebook group that Grace Young, stir yeah. guru, um, um, moderates. And uh, she can probably diagnose some ideas for your handle. I'm going to pop into your Facebook group and Grace's Facebook group and just get get the information I need. Um, Kathy, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have... No deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to write this book. I know you've thought about this. What would that book be? 
Okay. I think I'm going to go with this answer. It's one of several sort of ideas that have been in, like, the, the back backstage of my brain for a while. but um, <laughs> The green room? Yeah, yeah. basically. Uh, like a cookbook on rice. Yeah. I think rice would be so much fun. But once again, rice, you know, you can ha- travel a lot through rice, paella, sticky rice, yeah. rice pudding, rice, I don't know what, so many jollof rice, yeah. so many dishes that I love. So I just, I mean, personally, like from a food perspective, I would want to eat everything in that book yeah. so much. So, I would too, yeah. and I bet the recipes would be super dope. <laughs> I also hope Shelva becomes a book. Ooh, that would be fun. I want to make that happen if I can, huh. if I can do anything. I think it's the writing is so terrific. I see the, the wheels are turning. Wheels are a turning. Uh, there's so many great topics there. I will link to it again. Thank you, Kathy, for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.